Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Joseph Resnick to the show today. Dr. Resnick has a unique place in history. He is standing between Earth and space in what is considered the new frontier of space commerce. He is an environmental specialist, an applied scientist, an inventor with heavy-duty knowledge and expertise in astronomy, math, physics, both mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. When the Space Treaty of 1967 was founded, he noticed that there was an opening, a portal to become involved in space commerce. There was a vulnerability in the way the space treaty was written. And in fact, Dr. Resnick has taken possession of a large portion of the moon and part of Mars. He has created something called the Space Registry, where the moon has been mapped. He has so many patents in technology, both in traditional technology, advanced technology, but exotic technology. He has worked for and assisted NASA, General Dynamics, the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, Raytheon. He has developed waste elimination systems for the spacesuits for our astronauts that have gone into space. He's involved in many classified projects. And he is working on something in his new company called Armenco that has to do with removing the space debris that's floating around the Earth and causing something called global shading. He says this space debris is magnified with a kind of umbrella effect by a factor of 60 amplification, which causes plants to be deprived of the sun's energy. It's way more complicated than what I'm sharing with you. He's also involved in advanced microencapsulation technology, and we're going to talk to him about his work in outer space and what he can talk about, his work with Guy Kramer in the area of taking possession of parts of the moon and Mars. We're going to talk about the Universal Mineral Leases Registry. We're going to talk about his work in defense along with Guy Kramer. He has developed some stealth technology, which he can't really talk about in the United States of America. But just to know that he has, his father passed away at age nine, and he has been groomed with some very remarkable mentors in his life. One who taught him about electricity at age nine and really helped guide him. He seems to have always had some type of protection in his life to keep going. He feels himself to be on a mission. When he was 23, he sold the rights to an inner ear talk-through hearing device, a protection device to the U.S. Army. Made a ton of money from it. He is somebody that at a very young age made Donald Trump look like a bump. This is a man that stands between the earth and space. Some of us are scared of him. Some of us don't trust him. Some of us are fascinated by him. He has a lot to share about humanity, about delicacies and nuances that have to do with living in today's world and what the future world might look like. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Dr. Joseph Resnick to its rainmaking time. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kim. I'm honored by that accolade and, and uh, your description. 
And um, you're correct in, in those things that you've uh, put out there to uh, your great listening audience. And, and we have people, I have people listening worldwide, by the way. I'd like to say hi to all my colleagues and all my friends all over the world. I'd like to uh, um, thank you and thank your listening audience for this venue today. And, I'm, and I look forward to having a, a healthy and a, an informative discussion. And I'd just like to tell you, Kim, I'm prepared to discuss anything and everything that's uh, out there in the public domain, either on Armanco's website, which does have a link back to my curriculum vitae, which puts out uh, everything that I can put out in the public. Sure. I've made full disclosure, my patents, my technical papers, the ones that I can publish, they're out there. And so the people can go to me, and, and I have an open-door policy. People can contact me if they have a problem with something. And, you know, I'm also into to philanthropy in my spare time. Believe it or not, I do have spare time. I, I run vansforvets.org, which is an organization I set up a few years ago after I, I nearly lost my arms in an explosion you know, driving a Humvee. But uh, you know, through the grace of the, of the powers that be, some people call it God, Buddha, uh, Muhammad, uh, whatever, I'm still on this planet and continuing my mission to help people. And, you know, uh, uh, the VansForVets.org thing, I lived through that, and I promised God that if I lived, I was going to give back. So I set up this organization where we uh, provide uh, handicapped-equipped vehicles, other services. We pay people's bills, you know, so they don't get their electric shut off and stuff. And that's to disabled veterans and actually anybody that approaches us. But that's just another... Another way, you know, I'm, I'm one of these guys. I believe you have to give back. You know, how many Humvees can you drive? How many suits can you wear? How many steaks can you eat? And there are people out there, particularly the children, who don't have anything. So, uh, you know, I feel that people like me who have been blessed, we have a duty to, to give back. So that's in, in my own way, whatever that is. You know, some people call it crazy and insane because I do things like you know, pay people's houses off or send their kids to school or, you know, keep their houses from going into foreclosure. I just, uh, it's just something like that that you do. And if you catch me at the right time, then, then I, and if I can help, I help. I, I'm never turning anybody away. I just, Joe, I want you to get your pen out to its rainmaking time. <laughs> Stand by. Hold on one second here. You bet. Not to cut you off, but let's go back a little bit. For the audience, you've been on many shows for how many years? Have you been oh, out in the public? I want to say twenty years. About twenty years, I've, I've been able to give interviews. There was a time in my life when I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. For example, only in the past year, year and a half, have I been allowed, so to speak, or able to develop a relationship with John Lear. John's a fascinating man. I mean, he's just a fascinating guy. For many years, I wasn't allowed to talk with them, and and other people, uh, the you know former NASA employees, because I still work with the agency and still work with DOD and a number of the you know ABC organizations. I, I, there are people that that are what's the word, uh, nom de plume or you know bad guys. You're not allowed to talk to them, have nothing to do with them. So that, you know there were people like that in my life that were. Great, great scientists like Belonkin, Golovichev, and these Russian guys that were at the very leading edge of science in their day, but because, you know, I'm, I'm American scientists and they're Russian scientists or Japanese or Chinese scientists, I, don't, I can't talk to them. 
And with me, it's not about politics. I, really, I could care less about politics. I, I, I am absolutely apolitical. I do vote, okay, here in, in my district. I believe in exercising that right. But in terms of, uh, you know, political agendas and stuff like that, I, I, I just don't, I don't have time for that. I can't do anything about it because I don't have training there. I can help you get a guy on the moon, or I can help you get the space shuttle into orbit. I can do things like that. Or on the football field, I can calculate the trajectory of a football. I can't throw one, but I can tell you where it's going to go when, when you throw it if you stay within these parameters, plus or minus 20%. But in terms of politics, I just don't get involved. I just, I, I'm apolitical. On a gut level, do you feel that there are basically parallel systems happening at the same time? Meaning there's a traditional system in which there's checks and balances and accounting and all that. And then there's another system that has a different type of accounting that are projects that are classified for which their financing is also classified. Do you feel that? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'll use the term so you don't have to. A shadow government? Absolutely. And things going on that the, that the American taxpayer doesn't know about? Absolutely. Dwight Eisenhower himself lost control of it, and he admitted that. And his statements to that effect are right out there. And then after he did that, it was too late. Once the baby's born, you can't put the baby back. So that okay. opened up a, a plethora of, of uh, unchangeable events. Sure. I really wanted to know where you were at with that. And the other question I had for you, Joe, is are you permitted to say no to something you don't want to develop? Or Absolutely. do you, if you're asked, you really have to do it? No, 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 no. Absolutely. I can walk away from anything, anytime. I can walk away from anything or stop working, and when something doesn't sit right with me, or if I find there, there is a, and I've done this, Kim, I've walked away from projects where I've absolutely, you know, discovered uh, one way or another that what I was being told and, and my purpose and the reason for my involvement was, was fallacy, and I promptly stopped, and I invoked my rights under the Freedom of Information Act, and when necessary, I've never had to do it. I have threatened injunctive relief. So I'll stop them. I don't care. I'll expose them. If you want me to help you, I will help you do something if, if the net result is good. But if you want me to help you develop something to kill people or cause havoc, I'm, I'm the wrong guy. You need to go talk to somebody else. That, that's not Joe Resnick. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to help. I'm just trying to help. I'm, I'm, I'm here to help people, and, and that's my mission. That's my mission. It really is my mission. I've been blessed and kept alive. I've been, I'll tell you what, I've been in places where I walked over the bodies and there were machine gun fire going off and everybody around me dropping. Somehow I walked right out of the place. Not a scratch. Not a scratch. And there's dead men laying all around me. Not a scratch. Now, and you, do I believe in angels? <laughs> you bet you're bippy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I've seen there. I, you know, I've, I've been to the mountaintop, if I can use that quote. Yeah, I've seen this stuff. So, you know, there, there's some higher mission here. And, uh, you know, I had a couple of guys work me over in an elevator. <laughs> in fact, that's the last time I gave a presentation down at the IDSC in, in uh, May of 96. And two guys got in an elevator with me. And thank God I took some classes at the War College. Cause, and I'm, I'm no little guy either, you know. I'm... You know, five foot eleven, two hundred and thirty pounds. 
I'm no slouch. My arms aren't much good now because of the shoulder injuries and surgeries and all that stuff. Yeah, but I'm the little guy, and thank God that I did have the training and the skills I needed to get out of that elevator a lot. I won't even ask what happened to those two. <laughs> well, it was nice knowing them. But all I can say is, shortly thereafter, uh, the decision was made to to remove my display at Kennedy Space Center and take down uh, the, my display that was next to the Moon Rocks in the Galaxy Arcade for ten years. So. Uh, but they've since removed all that stuff, and those are now in the archives and in, in the uh, National Archives and at uh, places in Washington. I've since donated all those prototypes that you know were, were the uh, prototypes for the fueling systems for the space shuttle, the waste elimination systems, uh, onboard waste elimination systems, and and uh, the uh, fluid recovery systems, and then the waste elimination systems for. ILC Dover spacesuits, that sort of thing. Uh, that's those are all museum pieces now. So, but that was then, and this is now. Do you accept the presence or the possibility of extraterrestrial life? A and B. Are you allowed to say, "Look, I accept this. It's here." No, I can't. I, no one has censured me, and no one has told me to keep my mouth shut about what I've seen and. And, my, and particularly my own personal experiences, which I've shared with you over the past 48 hours. And But I have, for one reason or another, elected not to put that stuff out into the public of right course, now. Of course, understood. But, uh, with regard to question A, absolutely. I'm convinced of it. Yes. The, the answer is yes. You know, if the answer is, are there uh, other life forms in, in the universe? Yes, absolutely, without question, without question. And I guess being who you are and being really in the center between Earth, the moon, Mars, space, an inventor, a businessman, all the things that you started, you know, you're pretty sophisticated in business. The patents that you filed, I mean, you made money very, very young, coming right out the gate. You've been mentored by wonderful people so right now at this time in your life, what does that mean to you about who you are, what you're doing, what you're here for, and what does this mean to the rest of us? Let me work backwards as uh, Dr. Sudeos and uh, you know, some of my mentors, you know, Uchi's ex-theory, Dr. Uchi used to tell me. And then we'll go to the space treaty, but I want to give you this. Okay. My mentors told me, Joe, when you have a difficult question like that, work the solution backwards. So with regard to, you know, you know, how it affects the rest of the world. I really don't have that answer. But for me, in terms of, you know, your query, how does it affect me? Here's the way I look at at, at uh, my situation and with everything that I've been through. And I've had a lot of nice stuff on my table. I've been blessed time and time again. And I've shared, you know, time and time again. But I am, uh, I have been blessed to have worked with men like Dale Kornfeld and just the list just goes on and on. Buckminster Fuller, these guys, you know, being up in their ages, literally handed projects to me and said, Joe, I'm too old to do this now. I'm not going to be here. And for whatever reasons, health reasons or retirement or whatever, they, they said, look, you stand on my shoulders. You take the ball now and you get it over the goal line. It's, this is your job now. You, you are the next generation. And that's what I'm doing to these kids. And that's why I accepted this uh, you know, teaching position over at the University of Malaysia. I hold, 
hold and and always in the past when I taught classes at University of Pittsburgh and taught at the uh, at the various uh, institutions of higher learning, I have always held a sanctity for the trust that people put in to me in terms of educating their children. We have nothing else except the, the, our children and the, and their futures. And to me, that's the holy grail. That really is. I mean, I hold that sacred so that when I get up in front of a young audience, and these kids are impressionable. Some of them, you know, have motives, and some have good motives. Some have extraneous motives, and some just don't know, and some are searching. But you know, my hope is when I give a lecture that I can, even if I can connect with one of them, and that results in the saving of one life or uh, an, one act of kindness, then all the effort's worth it. To me, it's all worth it. If we can just, you know, go, I guess it goes back to Scripture. We can just save the one. Save that one lamb. That's all you need to do. Do you agree that you occupy a position of access that is so rare and so unique in terms of your broad-spectrum understanding and experience and because of that, that's why I'm asking you this question kind of coming out the gate, which is, what does it mean to you that we're not alone? What does it mean to you now? It may have meant something different 30 years ago, but what does it mean to you now? And how does that understanding impact who you are today and what you're at work on? Well, the fact that we're not alone in the universe, I, I consider that to be fait accompli, particularly in view of recent disclosures and admissions from the, from the Vatican and other world powers that have acknowledged the existence of extraterrestrials. So how does that impact us? Presently, I don't know. I, I, am, I can tell you that I am attempting to engage these extraterrestrials to assist our project to clean the space debris because it impacts them too. What do you think happened at Roswell? Okay, they were hit by a meteoroid. Okay, meteoroids are part of the space debris and space fields that come through the Van Allen belt and all that stuff. So, so they're, they, they're stakeholders, too. Anybody that uses our atmosphere to come and go, and my understanding, there are multiple races of ETs, uh, and, uh, you know, they're stakeholders, too. So, you know, this is, and in terms of space and the cosmos, we're all stakeholders, no one owns space. I, I don't own space. The only thing I did in terms of space was I recognized the hole in the space law, and I sought counsel through uh, my, one of my mentors, Dr. Dick Kahneman, and said, Joe, this thing has all kind of holes in it. It doesn't relate to you or to me or anybody who wasn't a signatory, and it's not ratified, so it's not worth the paper it's on. So it doesn't really affect anybody, and it's meaningless, and you can be or claim anything that you want to with regard to space or Mars or the moon or the whole cosmos. And then the caveat was, everybody else can too, Joe, which is cool with me. I, I'm glad space is, you know, uh, Einstein said space is big enough for everybody. And I, I concur. You know, I, I'm, I have consensus with Brother Einstein on that. Space is big enough for everybody. There's enough room in space where everyone can be an entrepreneur. Uh, look at Diamandis just started <laughs> selling... Uh, names to craters uh, to raise money for their X prize. So, you know, I'm not the only guy doing this. There are a lot of, a lot of people out there, and, and I laud them. The only difference between what they do and what I do is my validity comes through, you know, my patents. I have, you know, a number of patents pending on 
these business models that I've developed. And that's how I'm financing um, the Space Cleanup Project is through the Universal Mineral Leases, one avenue. And that, and the reason for that is, and the reason that no space debris projects have been started and launched and actually undertaking is, or undertaken is, nobody wants to pay for it. The communication companies put this stuff up there and it, you know, it lays there, but there's no law anywhere that says, okay, once you put that up there, what's your end of life program for that thing? How are you going to get that out of the atmosphere? Well, we don't know. Then the next thing you know, the lobbyists are up there doling all kind of money out and nothing ever happens. Consequently, we've got space debris and we've got global shading and we've got the umbrella effect and then we've got the trickle-down effect, you know, the, the stuff runs downhill. Then we've got things like climate change, climate variabilities. And that's, a, my opinion, that's a direct impact or a direct result, rather, of what's happening out there in the atmosphere. It might not seem like a lot, but once you take into consideration the total number of pieces in NASA's inventory of that space debris, and you put each piece of that, it's an area the size approximately of Brazil. Then you take into consideration the umbrella effect from that, and, and you're blocking out an area the size of Africa every day, the size of Africa, for a 12-hour period every day. Now, what's happening to those plants? Do that twice in a day, given apogees and perigees and all that stuff. Do, do, that, do that for a week straight. What do you think is going to happen to those mangoes? What do you think is going to happen to the mangroves? What do you think is going to happen to the palms and the coconut oil? Is the space debris ours? I mean, is it from us? It's from, it's from the world. You know, we've got, we've got JAXA, we've got the Chinese, we've got the Russians put a bunch of stuff up. United States, um, uh, all, mostly every country now has its own space program. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse because we now have mini sats and mini bots. In fact, NASA has, is trying to sell slots on, uh, on a project to take, uh, and I think Virgin is involved. Virgin Galactic. In yeah, I think Virgin Galactic's involved in it, where they'll take they'll take a shoebox-sized satellite out into LEO, low Earth orbit, for you, and and put it out there for ten thousand bucks or some whatever the number is. I don't know what the number is, but the point being, uh, and there's a there's a, a young group of guys that I just became aware, of, and they're great guys. I might get them involved with us to do some prototyping for the Babinka class and the Babushka uh, space debris cleanup modules. These guys can make you a satellite for under a hundred bucks, and you can broadcast your own frequency that the FAA doesn't have any control over. That I'm ready, and and then you can you can put your own satellite up there for under five hundred bucks, and they use balloons. So you don't have to get the permit from the FAA to launch. No launch permits. There's no first stage, second stage. They use these uh, high-altitude balloons to put it up in the ionosphere. Once it's there, baby, it's there. And your, your decay rate is probably two years, three years. But for 200 bucks, you've got your own band channel that nobody can touch. You can put anything out there that you want to, sell your own advertising space, and there you go. You're in the space business. You're in the space entrepreneur business. But... Again, that adds to the problem of clutter up there in space. Yes, yes. Because you're going to have thousands and thousands of these little shoebox-sized things out there. So, you know, the, my recommendation to Professor Foti, who's a, a big guy down in South Africa who's in charge of rewriting provisions of the space law, is to, you know, we need to make provisions for all these things and define responsibility, 
define aspects of what happens when you put something in space. You have, my recommendation would be you have to have an end-of-life protocol. Then the insurance companies, you know, Lloyd's London, who's going to insure this stuff? What if, what if one of those little shoeboxes falls out and comes through your roof? You know, granted, they only weigh, you know, they only weigh 10, 15 pounds, some of them, you know, 5 kilos, 8 kilos. But still, what happens if that falls? Who pays? And and you and we will be we are able to identify anything that goes up there by virtue of the uh, universal serial number classification code agreements and all that stuff. So everything that goes up there has a serial number on it and identification. So we we know where it come from. We know who made it and the day it went up there because it's all tied to the serial numbers. I have a question, and this is from me being totally outside the technology. But how come it's staying close to Earth and it's not just flying out further and further into space? It's a function of the weight and the size of the debris and the level at which it became debris. For example, if it results as a result of the collision, like one of the Russian satellites collided with a Japanese satellite, you've got tons and tons of debris from that because the Russian satellite was not small. It took up the top one-third of a Soyuz craft. So that was pretty sizable. It was probably uh, 500, 600 kilos, pretty big machine. But that hit into one of the Japanese communication satellites, which blacked out parts of Europe and, and Asia for about two years till they could get something up there to replace it. But that alone probably accounted for maybe 18, 20 tons of material up there being fragmented and being put all over the place. And when that happened, it has a propensity to stay in that level. You know, it doesn't get any additional weight. Okay, that stuff in theory can remain in orbit forever because it doesn't have enough weight to fall down into the atmosphere. It's like limbo. It's just there, and it'll just keep circling, and it'll keep circling. There is some striation and spinoff. Right. If you look at NASA's modeling, and NASA does a good job at at doing the modeling and all that stuff, but if you look at the recent models, the models are consistent with the theory of spherosity, where everything in the universe is trying to achieve spherosity. If you look at the models you can see that the actual space debris, as it occurs in revolution around the Earth, is starting to take on what looks like the shape of the Milky Way. I've noticed it. I don't know if other researchers have noticed it, but it looks like a microcosm of the Milky Way in terms of the space debris. And just a few weeks ago, just I just started connecting dots, and I'm finding that some of the larger pieces of space debris actually mimic the Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, Cassiopeia, and things like that. I'm saying, wait a minute, this can't be. It can't be that the space debris is taking on the shape and the positions of the constellations in our galaxy. Or maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But maybe I'm right. I don't know. I looked at it, and I said, well, this just can't be, so I just closed that door. But there's a possibility there. Sorry to interrupt you, but I talked to somebody back in 2006, and we had lunch, and he said... Do you know that a satellite fell into Hawaii and there was massive amounts of plutonium that was released from that satellite? Do satellites have plutonium or or some type of material on it that's toxic like that and dangerous? Traditional satellites, not the new ones that are being developed, but... You know, I'll be honest with you. I have no knowledge of that. Okay. What what I'm concerned with uh, in terms of the satellite are the memory chips and the gold and the platinum that's used in uh, configuring the electronic circuits and uh, some of the frame hardware and the heat distribution systems. 
Now, it's very possible that the powering systems may have contained the plutonium pellet in theory. One of those little plutonium pellets could last for two, three hundred thousand years before it would be deplete. Right. And we know that the details are very important of this. For you to take out patents and to own what you would call land and mineral rights on the moon and anywhere else, you'd have to have a clarity that you could get there, that something could be assembled, right? So that you could develop it. You could mine for helium-3 and bring it back. Were you that far in advance assessing a future or did you have some knowledge, but maybe you didn't know how it was going to all work out? So when you took your claim to the moon, did you have part knowledge and part vision or just all vision? You didn't have the knowledge yet that you'd be able to do it because without getting permission from the authorities. Do you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. And a lot of it was vision, but then a lot of it. Now, keep in mind. I was pretty young, you know, I was only 16, 17, but at 18 years of age, 19 years of age, I went into Westinghouse Electric Corporation, and I was groomed very nicely in Westinghouse. I got a mechanical engineering degree, an electrical engineering degree out of Westinghouse, and I had the chance to work with some outstanding scientists and first-hand opportunity to work on Tesla equipment that had Tesla's nameplate on it. This invented by Nikola Tesla, 18, licensed to George Westinghouse at the Westinghouse Electric Corporation facility. So, you know, in that regard, I knew that someday I would be able to go to the moon and harvest H3. At that time, we didn't know about H3. H3 didn't come into existence until, I'm going to say, Apollo 13, Apollo 14, Harrison Schmidt. And, and started a study on that. Would you talk a little bit about, just brief the audience, what is helium-3 and why it's important? It's a very stable isotope that resonates at a frequency that if you can control the burn, so to speak, of the element, it gives off a cold heat. The cold heat can be harnessed and be used to do things like run turbines and motors and things like that. So it's a source of energy. And once you start the reaction and keep the reaction fueled in terms of keeping the supply of H3, it's literally unending. As long as you've got enough H3 to continue the cold fusion reaction, it just keeps happening and happening and happening, and it's very, very stable, very stable. No chance of, you know, explosions and that sort of thing and meltdowns and all the things that people would traditionally think of nuclear energy being associated with. There's none of those dangers that I'm aware of, anyhow, or, or, or that I've been able to find in the literature. I'm a doer. You know, I don't talk about stuff. There are armchair quarterbacks, and then there are guys like me who do it. I have people come to me and say, Joe, I need X, Y, Z. I need it in four days. Okay, here's what it's going to cost you. We're going to do this. They have it in two days. I do things. I don't sit around and talk and... You know, some people accuse me of being a dreamer. Yeah, I'm a dreamer with a purpose because I'm an applied scientist. I turn that dream into reality and put it on your desk. That's what I do. And that's what I've always done. With regard to my youth, don't hold my youth against me because my brain goes futuristic. And there's a very special place I go to. When I invent, I don't have anything to do with anybody. In the words of Professor Marvel, I go out there with my brother wizards mentally and I go to this special place where, you know, I'm sorry to say, most people aren't capable of going where my mind goes mentally. And that's good and bad, I guess, you know, because I've, sometimes I, 
I'll say to my family members, you know, sometimes it's tough for me because I walk this fine line of, you know, what's real and what's not real. Because I've worked on things, but I don't know how I did it. And my patent attorney, Dan Sullivan, God bless him, says, Joe, this is what's called serendipity. I said, Dan, I don't know how I did it. I'm back there in that lab drinking coffee and working on this. Here it is. I don't know how I did it. The material seeks the poet. The invention seeks the inventor. You're an opening. You're actually a vacuum for the solutions to come in. And your energy is wired to receive them and to bring them in. You know, that's the first time, Kim, in, in my entire career, anybody's pointed out that possible connection to me. Many people with that I've explained this to say, Joe, this is just one of those things. And, and it's not alien sending mental thoughts and telepathy. That, you know, I, I'm really not into that sort of thing. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but if it does, I'm sure not connected to it. You know, plug me in. <laughs> you know, it sounds like pretty much if you agree to bring something in, it's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you won't agree to it unless you have some knowing, some sense, it's going to be figured out and brought to life. Oh, there's a pragmatic end to me. That's right, Kim. There's, you know, if I can do it based on, you know, the collective consciousness and the collective capabilities that I have and taking into consideration the vast contacts, I've, you know, over 35 years, I've developed a, a list of contacts. It's absolutely frightening. And I've had the opportunity to work with the best people and the worst people. Somewhere in between all of that stuff lies the truth and my ability to make things happen. And that's what I do. I make things happen. I, and I don't like to waste someone's time. If they come to me with a particular problem, if I can help them, I tell them right on the spot because it's not about money. I, I'm already okay that way. Okay? So you can't buy me. You can, I'm not for sale. I am not for sale. If I like your project and I support your project, and if I see that there's good at the end of that project... I'm on board, and then I marshal all these people that I've got in my various companies and my past affiliations or associations, and I can pick up this telephone. I have access to all 13,000-some-odd federal laboratories and scientists immediately, immediately. Any one of them or any piece of equipment, anything that I need. They're, the government owns equipment that they don't know how to operate, and sometimes they call me and say, Joe, can you come over here to you know, blankety blank AFB. And can you, you know, show these guys how to do this? Sure. I'll be right over. And I still have to pay my, my fee. Uh, last time I did it was $13 a day. I had to pay for my own cot, but they gave me, you know, a meal and box lunches and treats. And stuff. But I'd go over there and hold seminars and show these guys here. Here's how you set this up. And this is this angle, this calculation there. But uh, if I can see some good in outcome, yeah, I'm on. And But let, let's just digress for a second back to the whole Universal Mineral Leases Registry. Yes, that's what I was going to take us back yeah, there, sure. I, I was involved early on in, you know, like star, selling star names and doing all that stuff. But no one ever patented that stuff. I got out of that. And, and at the time I, I walked away from that, I was recruited by NASA to do some things to help solve the problem of peeling and flaking with the stealth. Uh, aircraft and stuff. So I did that. Uh, I got involved with that. And at the time, I became a, a, a NASA scholar at the uh, Military College of Vermont, Vermont College, and did my master's degree there. But in the course of doing my master's degree, I was working special secret projects for different agencies that involved the stealth technology, which resulted in the issuance of miniature heat exchanger patents, which are in the public domain, the stealth patents, which are in the public domain, which enables us to change the background of uh, 
of a conveyance, we call them conveyances or platforms, we can change the conveyance to match the background in which it is encountered. See, there are different levels when you see something, visually see something, and electronically see something, too. With electronics, there are a multiplicity of, of adventures that one encounters electronically. But visually, there are only five fields of view to encounter. So we can, for example, if I don't want you to see something, I can do things to the object that can trick your eye. That, that's what Guy was probably touching on when he told you about, you know, the Harry Potter cloak technology aspect of that low observable and bending light, that sort of thing. There are things that we can do and manipulate those five fields, encounter close, near, far, and seldom seen there are five different levels of visual encounter that you actually encounter every time you see something. Yet these five fields are there. So if we can throw one of those fields off, we're going to throw off your perception. It's just like uh, what the military did with ships at sea. If you break the conventional line of vision by putting a stripe or something on, you know, you have the blue sea, then you have the background as a result, you know, blue sky as a result of Rayleigh scatter. But then, then you have a ship that's gray. But then if you break up that all gray by putting tiger lines in it, you can't see the ship. You can't see it. Do you think that it's possible for that to be occurring at any time with the moon? <laughs> What, where we're not seeing the moon? Well, we're not seeing. Oh, the, well, and and I know what it's. You mean a, what's on the moon? Well, yeah, obviously the technology's been around for a long time. I did a piece on holographic technology a few years back. Yeah, and the gentleman was in Nature magazine, and it was touted as the big thing of its time. And I asked him, "Have you heard a patent number?" Ba 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 ba, and named it off to him, which is a military patent for holographic technology, sound, light, CGI, the whole caboodle. He had no clue. It was 40 years ago. And there was a silence. And if that was 40 years ago, I would imagine it's profound, profound ability. And again, I'm talking about when I refer to this, the other part of the economy and the other part of the world that, you know, is not accountable in Congress, not accountable. It's that other realm, which this is being developed. So I would imagine it's possible if People in charge, and I mean the real people in charge, want us to see the moon a particular way. I guess that can happen. Do you think so? Absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. Listen, let me step back and tell you this. With regard to the moon, we talked basically about the moon. And what I'm saying to your listeners is don't believe the pictures that anybody shows you with regard to the moon. Get your own telescope Take your own pictures that you're not going to airbrush out. You'd be surprised what you find up there. I bought my grandson a cheap telescope at Goodwill. And guess what I showed him on the moon? Oh, no. Oh, yeah, with a $20 telescope. So the point being, don't believe everything you see. You know, I'm not poking NASA in the eye, and I'm not accusing NASA of airbrushing anything. Wink, wink. Okay. Go and look for yourself and believe your own eyes. And, you know, you didn't bring this up, but I'm going to touch on it right now. With regard to UFOs and that that sort of thing, don't believe me or don't believe anybody else or whatever. Anything anybody else says, just go outside and look up. Just go outside and look up. Then you be the judge. Don't let anybody else tell you, just go out and look up. And then you be the judge. Then you answer your own question. 
because you get bombarded with disinformation and this, and particularly with what's happening on the moon and projects up there. And I can tell you personally that I have knowledge of the existence of bases on the backside of the moon. This has been disclosed and revealed to me. What they're doing up there, I have no idea, but the sources of the information are absolutely unimpeachable. I've staked my life on the reliability of that information. In fact, I have several times. I asked you this a couple of days ago, but I'd love for you to respond to it on the show. What makes you calm and clear and poised about the fact that you have these mineral claims on the moon? You know, it's not the backside of the moon as far as I know, but you have these huge mineral claims, right? That you will be permitted by these other groups, whoever they are, whatever they are, to carry on. Wait a minute. I don't need permission from anybody and neither does anybody else. We are all human beings. We all have the heritage of space and the universe. That's our entitlement as sentient human beings. That's why on the Universal Mineral Leases Registry, which I wrote over 30 years ago, the preamble that says, Know ye all sentient beings. Know ye all sentient beings. That means anybody that can read and understand this Here's what it is. If you can read this and understand it, here's what I'm saying to you. And you and the listeners and everybody has the right to do what I'm doing. Hey, go do it. Go do it. Don't talk about it. Go do it. Go do like I did with uh, interorbital systems out there in Mojave. I'm working on contracting them right now. I'm going, we're going to the moon. And I don't care who likes it. And nobody's stopping me. First of all, there's no law that says I can't. And there's no court of jurisdiction on this planet that can stop me from filing patents and then making my patents happen and reduce them to practice. And part of that is going to the moon, utilizing the designs I have for H3 recovery apparatus and equipment, and I'm doing it. It's as simple as that, and I don't care who likes it. No, no, actually, I'm glad you said what you said. I actually meant something different. I meant from the extraterrestrial part. I mean, if they if They have in no fa- jurisdiction over me, and I'm not afraid of them. You're not? They have a blue light that they, they fear. I'm not afraid of them. You're not? They can't touch me. They can't touch me. Nope, I'm not, I'm not afraid of them. There's something behind me that has kept me alive through the travail of the ages, if I could quote General Patton and quote scripture. And it's bigger than anything I've ever encountered. It's strong enough to start my heart up three times without being resuscitated after two and a half hours. So you figure out with no brain damage. Talk a little bit about what you can talk about sure. with regard to your association with Harrison Schmidt, a former Apollo 17 astronaut. I know when I interviewed him a few years ago, he was very excited about recovering helium-3 I was concerned that it was going to take so long to get all the logistical approvals and all the red tape that it may not happen, but it sounds like it's going to happen, or it's happening. Again, first of all, we don't need any approvals from anybody. Our president, Sherm Hawes, is in communication with Dr. Schmidt's organization as we speak, as we speak to put them on notice of our intention, and uh, we're finalizing the contracts with interorbital systems out there in Mojave with Randa and Roderick Millarn and Dr. Lutz Kaiser and that group. They're the foremost uh, launch capability company on the planet, and they do a lot of launches for a lot of different companies. If you go to iOS.com, uh, 
which is interorbital systems in Mojave, California. You'll see who these people are. They're the best on the planet. So we're working out the budgetary data right now. We're uh, finalizing our designs for the SCDCs of space debris cleanup modules, finalizing that with Dr. Blanken, Dr. Golovichev, Dr. Bruno, Dr. Izmelov. We're finalizing all those designs, and once we freeze those designs, we'll go into. And keep in mind, our designs are consistent with, even though it's not worth the paper, it's on in some people's opinion. There is a space law that says you can't put anything up there that emits anything that can be considered a weapon. And that includes space nets, too, that the Japanese are talking about. Am I, am I digressing? Am I no, getting... no, no. I think it's very interesting. But a lot of people, like Carol Rosin has written a treaty to ban space-based weapons. and Tell me what a space weapon is. Is a net a weapon? According to the present space law, I can't cite article and verse because I don't have it up on the computer now, but I could, yes. uh, given enough time. You can't launch anything from something that you have in space. You can't have anything protrude or emit from your vessel that you put up there in space. You can collect anything that you want, but you can't shoot a net. That constitutes a weapon. And we do have people and countries that say, wait a minute, that's a weapon. We don't allow that. We object. We're not signing the treaty. So this is why nothing gets done, because you have this quibbling. and It's just like, who's going to pay for it? Well, I'll tell you what, I eliminated that problem. We're paying for it. We're paying for it. I've got people standing in line to help because these people care about the planet and they care about global shading. They care about these errant meteorological conditions that are resulting. And they're not dumb. These people aren't stupid. I mean, I don't know who's in charge of what, and I really don't care. But, you know, we're not all stupid. You know, they cut us to the quick, as Professor Marble would say. They cut me to the quick. I'm not as dumb as you think I am. Can we go to something really sensitive now? And I don't remember where I read it, but you did have some type of formal involvement or research done in the area of HARP. Yes. Can you talk about what you can talk about it and put the audience at ease with at least your role in that, what it is? Because, you know, some people try to explain it. Other people think that technology is the cause of so many things. Can you please lay it out for us and explain what it is to the best of your ability, what you can talk about, why it's used, or why it was set up. HARP was initiated years and years ago, which resulted in issuance of a patent related to what are called the phased array antenna. Now, a phased array antenna, for example, Poker Flats, is an installation where you have a, a series of identical antennas capable of outputting certain frequency ranges, and the neat factor, we call it, of this particular installation is that those collective uh, emissions can be focused into a particular area. So what you're able to do is take the array and take all of those 220 or whatever the number is and focus the output into one place. Now, the purpose of that was to conduct atmospheric experiments. That's my understanding. And to do other things. Now, my partner and friend, longtime friend Guy Kramer, speaks to something called moon bounce. And that may or may not have happened. I don't know. If it has, maybe Guy has some special insight because he has a close working relationship with MOD up there. And he's on, uh, on the other side of the border where he's untouchable by our people. In fact, Guy is probably the foremost uh, expert. I know he's NASA's expert when it comes to ion propagation. I know that for a fact. 
But with regard to my involvement, that's about the limit of my involvement, other than I have knowledge that my material, the material that I patented, it's the stealth radex material, that it's a coating, uh, and this is in the public domain, that comprises a certain element. And if you ever saw the movie uh, that Schwarzenegger was in called Predator, it works in much the same way. When when uh, Schwarzenegger fell into the creek, he put this stuff on his body, and when he put that stuff on his body, it canceled out his thermal signature, so that the alien couldn't see him. Well, this material that I use does that too, and it has the particular capability to couple and yield frequencies that fall between conventional radar schemas and other conventional <laughs> radar and frequencies, such that it absorbs electronic signatures and electronic frequencies so that the person emitting the radar signal doesn't get a signal back. You know, and this gets back to our, you know, visual thing that I was telling you about. The person can't see it electronically. It's just not there. Now, do you own this technology or did you develop it for another group? No, I patented it with a view towards selling those license plates out there that you can buy that have, have the material on it so that the cops can't get you <laughs> with the radar guns, because I feel that's in, invading my privacy. So, and of course, the police hate me, for, <laughs> probably. And, and, and they're illegal to sell in about 17 states, so you know, it really turned that over to another guy. And when I filed the original patent on the stealth, I had 166 claims, and it only issued, I think we were allowed 33 claims. And part of that dealt with the ability to change an object's color to match its background, which subsequently I learned some years later went on to be developed at Los Alamos. A guy by the name of Ben Johnson took that project, and, and I was quite taken aback when I saw it on the History Channel. I was like, what is this guy? I don't know this guy. What's he doing with my technology? So, you know, I made some inquiries, and just uh, the inquiries fell on deaf ears, and so we don't know what you're talking about. So I sent them a clip of the videotape from the History Channel and said, what is this all about? Who, who, who's this guy? And, and you guys are operating under my patent. You didn't tell me. You know, I've got a, a valid patent, valid claims that teach this. And if you're doing that, we need to belly up to the bar. You guys need to write me a check. And this is done all the time. It's so it's, disgusting. Yeah. It's yeah. done all the time. When that I answered your when, question. Yes, when I... When I talked with Guy Kramer. One of the questions I asked him, and I want to ask you too, I use tennis because that was the metaphor and background of my earlier part of my life. I said, if you and I are on the tennis court, Guy, and I serve, you hit the ball back, the ball comes over the net, and I go to hit the ball back and you disappear on the court, what game are we playing? And I'm paraphrasing his answer, but his answer was, the essence was, I'm winning and you're losing. I have the leverage and the advantage, and you don't. But the real question is, what game are we playing? And I guess there's going to be a lot of listeners that say, look, this guy is developing stuff, the Future Soldier Systems Division, Vehicle Up Armor, Visual Mitigation Division. In other words, Earth and Space Biodefense Divisions. A lot of these companies or agencies are kind of operating rogue. As you've said in earlier conversations, you know, sometimes once you develop something, it's out there. You can't really control how it's used. The thing is, though, if you develop a lot of technology in the context of what appears to be for defense, when it's really for more than defense, I guess my question is to you, what business are you really in? What See, I business? Don't, I, yeah. I, I don't know that. You know, the latter part of your yes. prior statement, no one has ever told me that the things I develop are used as offensive weapons. 
all the stuff I've developed, to my knowledge, is used as defensive weapons. You know, keep my guys from getting killed. I don't want anybody to get hurt. Right, but In let fact, me ask I you. I wish there was no war, period. Right. But let's just say that your son or daughter, and this is just a philosophical question. Everything else is off the table, Ram. But basically, your son or daughter goes, let's say, to some country in a war, and he or she is on the field, and you don't know is the father, and your son or daughter has no idea that the supposed opposing side is using the stealth technology. In other words, there's a perception that we're fighting It's not going to be equally, but that there's some basic fundamental assumptions in the field, right? But where we are now in the advancement of technology and how sophisticated things are in the massive knowledge base is we're not in the same game. There's only one game, and it's our game. Our (laughs) game is is to protect liberty at all costs, protect the sanctity and the freedom of America and the American people. That's what I've sworn allegiance to. Now... I contribute to that prospect in support of the Constitution every day, every breath that I take. And what the other people or the decision makers do with technology that I develop, if they pervert it, then that's on them. My job is to protect people using the technology who need protection, and whatever that is, that's my job. My job is troop resilience, troop strength, People strength, people resilience, you know, in my terms of the medical devices right. I've developed, right. rehabilitation, that's what I'm all about. Now, if you take something that I developed and you pervert it, that's on you. And someday you will, you will face the creator for doing that. And you will be tied to you because there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth for you doing that. Believe me. So that's on the other guy. That's not on Joe Resnick. Joe Resnick doesn't have any problems sleeping at night. Because I'm all about helping. I'm not about taking guys. Right. I'm about saving them. But you know how it is, Joe. That but I agree with you. That Once we, the baby's we, gone. It's you know it's out there, and I can't stop them. Right. No, I understand. But they're not going to stop me from doing good either. No, I understand. I understand. But they're sorry to be defensive. That's Joe. all right. I asked you a sensitive question. I realize that. But that what I'm saying also is, on some level, to be the level and depth of inventor that you are, and businessman, and creative, and entrepreneur. For you to develop some things is not like just any inventor developing some things. And some part of you would have to compartmentalize your perception of what you're doing to make certain things. Oh, yeah. We talked about that subject the other day with regard to uh, Dr. Oppenheimer and how he felt disillusioned by things and how the very forces that he strove to protect turned on him at the end. And, you know, he you know, made this quote that he became the destroyer of men. I would shudder to think that anything that I developed would, would fall to that level of turpitude. I just, it would disillusion me, too, if someone came to me and said, Hey, Joe, you know what? This thing here that you did, you did this, this, uh, we just wiped out half the population of Bolivia because of you. It would disillusion me and it would upset me and then get me mad. The worst thing you want to do is get me mad. You want me to be on your side and not your enemy because I'm in a pretty unique position, Kim. People or things or situations that come into my life and serve as a roadblock or if you hurt someone close to me or go against something and people get hurt and children get hurt, you make me mad. And when I get angry, I can stop everything I'm doing right now. Right now, I don't have to do anything I can stop right now 
and I can be the worst enemy that you ever had. And those forces that I have behind me that support me for good, I can engage those to another purpose if I so choose. I haven't done that, but I can do that. I shudder to think what would happen because well, I can be the worst enemy you know what? ever had. I, honestly, and they can only kill me once. You can only kill me once. You know what? I know this about you. I knew this before we ever spoke. Wait, let me finish. You can only kill me once. <laughs> then when you liberate this soul, look out. I hear you. Because I will haunt you. I will haunt you and all your children and make the existence. So that's where I am mentally. You know, people say, well, this guy's crazy. Yeah. I'm not crazy because there's reality and then then there's reality. And it has to do with your level of acceptance and what you recognize as reality and what you've seen. I can tell you, I've seen things that would uh, curl Don King's hair. Believe me, that people say, this can't be, this can't. Well, it is. It is. Does it scare you? No. Are you horrified by anything you've seen or experienced? Yeah, I'm horrified by death. I don't like man's inhumanity to man. I don't like that. I don't support that. I just can't see chopping a kid's arm off because we gave him a shot of gamma globulin or something like that. I just can't buy into that that ideology. But some people do. But, uh, but those are things I can't control. So the things that I can't control or can't positively impact, I don't waste time on it because the, the limited time that I do have in this planet, on this planet, and in this plane, my purpose is to do good stuff. I, You know, I really don't have an evil bone in my body, and I'm sure I have some enemies out there, but I sure don't know them. I don't know who they are, and I sure didn't do anything knowingly to hurt anybody, because it's, it's just not in my nature. I'm not that way. I'm a helper. I'm, you know, I help people. I like to help people. It makes me feel good. That's where I'm at mentally, physically, emotionally, uh, psychologically, financially, and, and that's it, you know. Are you ready for your trip to the moon? You know, uh, I don't think I'm going to go. No? No, I have, uh, I've already selected my guy, Richard Archer. I recommended Richard to NASA several years ago. He's got all the right stuff. He's a, a scientist par excellence, probably one of the foremost, if not the foremost, archaeo-paleo-astrophysical uh, scientists on the planet today knows everything about striations and this and physics and just uh, just a real dynamic kid. I recommended him to be part of the first Mars mission, and uh, my understanding, he was selected. And, you know, poor Richard's wife did not like me because it's supposedly a one-way mission. Oh, I'm sure you could understand that. I'm yeah. sure you and could understand that. I sort of fell out with Alexandria over that. But, uh, you know, that's what Richard wanted. But... You know, NASA's not doing that now. There's no real plans to do anything, and and we're going to have to send people up there. Most of, the first thing that we're going to be doing up there is robotic. The first thing that we're going to do is uh, establish a presence up there so that we can validate all the stuff that we're doing under the Universal Mineral Leases Registry paradigm and business models and patents and all that stuff. So that's our first mission, and that's where uh, interorbital systems comes into play. We're going to put a robotic up there. We're not, we didn't even apply for the X Prize. We don't, that, we, you know. I got it. I got it. We're not doing, we don't need to do that. We're, we're not doing that. Can we go we're, back we, to something 50 years ago for just a moment? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I was 11 years old. Go ahead. <laughs> I won't say how old I was. But anyway, the Van Allen belt. Yeah. 
John Lear does not feel that early Apollo astronauts ever really got through the Van Allen belt. And it's perplexed me. What do you think? I don't know. Something happened to John Glenn. And I think it was a result of our, our not knowing about uh, the radiation factors and, and all of that stuff uh, during those first you know, missions. And uh, I don't know. I really never discussed it with John if I get the chance. And to. I know it's sensitive, so I just yeah. wondered what your feeling about it was. Not so much what you know, but your feeling about it. Well, I know it presents a problem in terms of radiation and shielding for our species. So, you know, I am aware of it. But there are shielding and coupling. Even some of the stuff that I've discussed and some of the things that I've developed uh, prevent, you know, the radiation exposure. Um, you know, look, let's go back just for a second. You asked about HARP and my involvement there. We yes. Never, we left that open. The limit of my involvement was supplying the material that coats the uh, phased array antennas. Does that technology concern you in any way for all biological systems? That, in other no, words, I don't know. If, uh, you know, I, I've seen the, the the people out there who say, and, and HARP was shut down last year, by the way. There are people out there who say, well, it's been used to do this and to dumb down the troops through moon bounds, you know, when we went into Afghanistan years ago. I have no knowledge of that. I, that's, that's conjecture to me because that, that's, I, you know, quite frankly, I don't think it works that way. But unquestionably, negative ions produced in the phase array within those frequency ranges can impact the human species. Right. But to my knowledge, I, I don't see what would we gain from something like that? What would work? What do you gain from that? What? I don't know enough about it to even answer you. People out there saying, well, we're causing earthquakes. No, the negative ones, they don't work that way. And so people who say that, you know, they're, they're talking from some other end of the body. But it doesn't work that way. They don't know the science and they don't know the subject matter about which they purport to be knowledgeable. It just doesn't work that way. So that, that's the limit of my involvement up there. Um, I have an issued U.S. patent that's in the public domain that, you know, and the people can go and look at my patents, read my patents, and, you know, free to practice any one of them. For, go ahead. Under doctrine of fair use, do anything you want. God bless you. If you can figure out a better way to make it better and help people, God bless you. Go do it. Um, you know, maybe come to me and maybe I'll help you stand up a company. I have a question about the cosmic rays coming in. I had asked Sharon from NASA when we did that interview a month ago. Yeah. Had she had any knowledge if there's more, is it gamma rays coming in? Because I was concerned about it, and I was wondering if that's something you're knowledgeable about. Are we getting more gamma rays from space into the Earth? Well, NASA has an inventory where where you know the listeners can just go and Google uh, Na- uh, Google NASA's website you know, gamma ray index. In fact, on uh, Guy Kramer's, on Guy's, uh, one of his websites, I think at Hyperstealth, he's got a link to that. Right. That shows the daily radiation dose and all that stuff. And NASA's been monitoring that, I think from the 60s, from the late 1960s, they've had that up. And of course, it's, you know, evolved into the present sophisticated modeling. And and um, we've got some Earth uh, observation satellites out there uh, now that monitor those conditions and things. Uh, but uh, myself, personally, the gamma rays have always been here, and they're always going to be there. Okay. And 
I don't know if, if this is leading into your question about Ed Dames and the kill shot. I have no interest in any of that, <laughs> actually, none. Me neither. That's all I'm going to say about that person. You said something so interesting before this interview. You said something, and I don't remember the context we were talking about. I think I may have asked you, do you think that the paradigms that we're using in the universities, if it's really wrong, how are we going to really advance? And you said something like, I'm paraphrasing, the physics is really different. It's wrong, but it's really different. The real physics. Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Okay. Is there something that you can talk about? I thought that was fascinating. It's very rare when somebody could say that with an appreciation, or is this all classified and you can't really talk not, about not it? Not to my knowledge, but okay. I, I can tell you, uh, recently I've, I've had some correspondence with a fellow by the name of Charles Hall. Very interesting, very interesting fellow. He's in, in, in fact, I just had a, an email last night from his wife, Maria Teresa Hall, uh, with regard to an inquiry I made to Charles with regard to his experience at... at uh, Area 51, Area 53, Area 54, when he was a weather observer for many, many years. Uh, as a uh, Yeah, he was a weather observer for the U.S. Air Force and worked a non-classified position, but it had access to literally dreamland, Area 51. and um, But, okay, I'm, I'm sort of losing my context in, in providing the answer. But, oh, and yeah, I know where I'm going with this. Hall uh, has a theory called Hall photon theory. I happen to be a proponent of photon theory. And I always, in my study of physics, when I would query my instructors with regard to holes in the calculations for calculus, I would ask the professor, Professor, what about this? Where, where is this? Where, where's the meson particle come in in this? Well, it's really not understood. Wait a minute. Okay, it's not understood. So, you're, I'm only getting part of the equation here because there's something missing and I can't obtain logically the answer using this calculation. With it, It's like playing solitaire with a deck of 51. Right. You can't win. You can't, you can't get the ultimate solution unless you've got all the variables. It's like trying to find a point on a map with only one, one point of reference. You need at least two to triangulate a position. So... It, the photon theory, Hall has what's called Hall photon theory, and these are discussed in his books. He's got a series of six different books that tells all about his experiences when he's, you know, honorably discharged U.S. Air Force veteran. You know, I don't know if he didn't get many awards, but he left the Air Force, and only a few years ago he decided to, you know, memorialize his uh, the information and his experiences there to his grandchildren, which, you know, I've done much the same thing in terms of putting together an unpublished manuscript so that my grandson can learn from some of these things that I've experienced and some of the things that uh, I've encountered uh, so that he has knowledge of that. I, I believe that, you know, our safety rests in our knowledge and, and our power rests in what we do with it. So... You know, it's, knowledge is one thing, but what are you going to do with it once you have it? Are you just going to hide it from people? And you can't educate someone by hiding things. You've got to put it out there and let the people decide for themselves. You know, again, 
many people and, and institutions think that, that people are stupid. People aren't stupid. People are smart. People are good. And they want to help and they want to do good things. You've got to give them the opportunity. And a lot of people don't have that opportunity because they're not told the truth. But let's get back to Hall theory. Hall's got a theory of a thing called a meson. And if your listeners go back and you look in my work, I've brought in particularly the self-patents because the examiners were unable to challenge my claim to control the meson particle at the molecular level. They couldn't say you can't do that because simply no one... There's not a whole lot of information because uh, the information has been hidden. It's not put out there by the guys teaching physics. And some people, and, and they just ignore it. But it's there. And it's not only that, but there are five or six different um, forces. There's just not gravity. There's just not inertia. You know, <laughs> there's about five or six different more things that are out there that are, are just simply not being taught. So You think it will always be that way in our lifetime? I don't know. That's why, you know, people have to, you have to take it upon yourself to learn and, and to, to, to investigate. I, I, for one, I don't believe what people tell me. I'm probably the biggest, biggest skeptic there ever was. Uh, you know, I, in my training, I'm a scientist. If I can't cut it, weigh it, or particulate it and put it under a microscope, then, you know, I have a real problem with, with things. You know, although I, I never close the door on, on the possibility of possibility. And, and, and I have, again, you know, going back to my personal experience, I've seen things that, you know, make me question, you know, the sanctity of my immortal soul and say, you know, ask myself questions. This can't be. Well, there it is. You're standing in front of you. It's as real as that table. So, you, you know, it's pretty hard to deny things that are matter of fact and when you deal with things like that. But getting back to the people, go and don't believe what people tell you. Go and, and just like, you know, the looking up, if you want to know if there's UFOs and that sort of thing, just go look up. Don't believe what people tell you and the guy's selling books and doing this. and You know, they're selling books. You know, God bless them, they're selling books. You want to believe in, if, you, if you're looking, you find your own answers. You know, your answers, they're there. You just got to search them out. I don't rely on anybody to give me the answers. I go and, you know, that's probably because I lost my dad and really didn't have anybody to counsel me other than Dick Heineman and Bill Ward, a couple of these guys that, that were, you know, treated me like, you know, the orphan son that it was. But, uh, you know, I was blessed to have guys like that that guided me in a good direction and, and you know, always taught me, Joe, never compromise your dignity. Above all else, maintain your dignity and do good things. If you can't do something good, you don't do anything. Turn and walk away. So that those are the uh, men and the ideologies that impacted my life. So, you know, I've lived it. I, I Im imbue that, and I exemplify that, uh, and I amplify it as much as I can. For, and I encourage uh, people to do that. Do you think that your missions to the moon to mine helium-3, as that whole thing really gets into play, do you think that you will be able to establish or utilize either the knowledge or a product that allows you to get there without using fuel? We're presently bound in terms of that mission to using conventional lift technologies. Okay. As of this moment in time, now, I am exploring alternatives that do involve, let me 
put it this way, off-planet resources. Understood. Understood. I am exploring that, but as of this moment in time, the plan, as written, is to use conventional lifts through ISO, you know, in orbital systems, and do it that way. Uh, we, we're going to put um, we're going to put a little extractor up there. The thing's probably going to weigh about. Uh, 150, 200 kilos. Then we're going to launch it back off and recover it, send it to the space station, recover it at the space station, go so from there. all this requires a lot of cooperation, doesn't it? The International Space Station, I'm sure NASA has to cooperate. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Once it gets rolling, these are the associates in the mission to make it happen, to make it complete and successful. Do you know already if helium-3 will be okay here? In other words, I know you said it's safe and... Very stable you know, isotope. Very stable isotope. We already have a source. We've got people waiting in line to take as much as we can get. It's very high in demand. And and there are other elements up there, too. Right. There's a... I mean, it's just... Uh, there's so much good stuff up, up there on the moon. And we can use the resources up here, you know. And when, simply put... The stuff that's on the moon we don't have here on this planet, and that's why you know the mission to go up there and harvest this material, particularly, and it's there plentiful. It's plentifully, it, it is there in plenty, and there's more of it on the backside of the moon than, than you know. You have cislunar and translunar. There's more on cislunar. You see these big dark areas that you see up there. Guess what that stuff is? Guess what you know? You see the craters that make the man in the moon. Guess what that dark stuff is? H3. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big pockets of it. Big pockets of it. Now, that leads us into, you know, is there anybody up there doing similar things? And I, other than what I've been told about the, the black side or the dark side of the moon, I don't, I can't say for sure other than, you know, what I've already mentioned in the statement. But I know we're going there. We've got a plan. Um, the plan is being finalized as we speak. And, and, that's, and we're going to do that. Isn't it expensive? In traditional lift technology, it's very expensive to get anything out into space. Yes, it is. Our budget initially is between 15 and 20 million bucks. That'll put us on the moon, recover our first batch of uh, H3, and give us enough funding to come back to Earth, return that to Earth, and to then engage our legal counsel to finalize uh, and to initiate all the claiming, all the setup rights. Um, you know, I'm working with a couple of foreign governments right now to establish, I mean, I'm, we're this far along in it, uh, actually commodities exchanges for that kind of stuff. Oh, my God. Wow. I'm going to do it. Pardon? Someone is going to do it. I'm excited. I mean, it's coming. It's You, you can't stop this. Man has to go. We don't have a choice. You know, Kim, we don't have a choice. Mankind doesn't have a choice. We've got to go and do this. And cold fusion is, is you know, it's, the, I think, the best shot that we have to solve the energy uh, crisis right now and to provide realistic, achievable solutions to uh, Mr. Gore's climate change thing. And, you know, so this, this, this is sort of, you know, without me, you know, embracing all that stuff that's happened there and some of the claims to fallacious information and doctor info and stuff without embracing any of that. Yes, I understand. Uh, yeah, I, I can't. I don't know because I wasn't involved. If that was my people, I, I would have. I'd have hung them for for doing stuff like that. that. That wouldn't happen under 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 my watch. But to provide a solution to what they put out there, 
this is a real real solution. Not only does it involve recovery of H3 and providing a new power source and new sources of energy for the Earth, but also involves cleaning the atmosphere, because that's part of it. That's part of it. You know, you just, it, it, it's, you know, how many fingers do you need to put in the dike, you know, to stop the leaks? So when you, when you start something like this, and yeah, it's avant-garde. You know, when I'm talking about doing these things are pretty bold. A lot of people say, well, it'll never happen. Well, never's a long time. You know, and there are people, again, getting back to Bucky Fuller and getting back to Taylor Wang, Dr. Wang, Dale Kornfeld, um, and just the great, great men who, whose shoulders I, I was privileged to stand upon. I have people behind me, too. I've got people on my shoulders right now, too. So, so that, if, you know, I'm not here to make it happen. They're behind me, and they've got the capability, and they've been groomed, and they know what the what the truth is and what the reality is, and they know what the mission objective is. So if I should, you know, happen to step in front of a bus accidentally like John Mack or something, there are people behind me, and they are just as committed as I am, and they are just as good and wholesome as I am, if not more. Some of them are saints. I consider them to be saints, literally. You know that a lot of people, even though there's tons of inventors working with great things, yes, you know, you and I both know and the public knows that Every time someone who has something major hands it over or does a deal with certain agencies that they're no longer here. And so there's naivete. I mean, we can talk about the man who had the water-powered car, Stanley Myers, and the deal he made with an organization, and he was gone the next day or the next few days or whatever. So on some level, somebody has to want this besides you. What if you get back? And I want you to imagine coming back with the Helium-3. All the legal arrangements are made. The commercial arrangements are made. And the big bully organization, the NSA, comes to you and says, you are only selling this to the following groups. Well, Kim, you know, let me stop you right there. I didn't say I was coming back to the United States. We're multinational. I understand. I guess what I'm saying is I'm acknowledging the delicacy and the potential danger in what you're putting forth. And it's one thing to dream it. But you're a person who does it. You're a rainmaker. You actually pull it all the way through. So you don't take anything on that you're not going to actually deliver, which I love about you. But I get that you're going to deliver. In the delivery is my concern that this will be sequestered. And I think that's a legitimate concern. Uh, yeah, I concur with you. Okay. you know, I can't say what's going to happen. You know, I can't, you know, I'm not, I don't have the crystal ball to answer that. Yeah, I hear All you. I can tell you is, my mission is to go and get the stuff and make it available to. You had asked about, you know, my affiliation with uh, Harrison Schmidt, Doctor Schmidt. Yes, yes. I I had a conversation with Harrison Schmidt about six years ago, when he, you know, came out of the woodwork and retired and did this and, you know, started talking about the helium three. And I called him on the telephone and said, Doctor Schmidt, Doctor Resnick from NASA. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you know, talked about NASA war stories for a second or two. <laughs> and about my cousin Judy and that sort of thing. But I asked him, how much money do you need to make this happen? And, and, and how close are you? And he said, well, we're probably going to need about 100, 200 million. He said, but we're close. He said, the problem is we don't have any fuel. I said, okay, I'll get back to you. That was six years ago. Uh, I gave Sherm Haas, our, our Manco's president, instructions last week, reach out to Harrison Schmidt. Re, uh, rekindle the uh, the conversation with him, 
get an update. I'd like to know how close he is and quantities, what, what type of quantities, initial quantities would he like to have in terms of kilos. You know, 30 kilos, 40 kilos. Also, we're going to need his recommendation with regard to containment. Now, I've got um, a couple of the people in our team are looking at, you know, containment, isolation. Uh, once we denature the stuff, well, actually denature the stuff on the planet, it's got to be packaged a certain way so that we can uh, arrange, you know, the galactic transport, so to speak. That's where, you know, we've got uh, John Lear and we've got uh, uh, Ron Schmidt and we've got John uh, Fountain. Uh, you know, these guys are the galactic resource management team who are going to be tasked, who in fact are tasked with handling uh, the materials so they come back and, and dissemination and control and, and uh, selection of not only uh, off-planet stuff, but also stuff that uh, happens to, you know, the, we happen to recover here on Earth. They're tasked with that. But, uh, you know, all that, is, that's all in motion. You know, we've, we've had a lot of people put a lot of thought into this. And there's a lot of paper trail out there. And, but with regard to, I see where you were leading with the question about, you know, what if Big Brother comes in and says, you're only going to do this much with it. Well, that I mean, they've come to people for a lot less, is my point, really. You know what I'm saying? Well, I'll tell you what. We're under the microscope, and a lot of people are looking at us, and they can't kill everybody. Or can they? Or do they run that risk? You can't kill everybody. You can't stop everybody. Here, you can't stop a good thing from happening. You can't stop a good thing. Sooner or later, the guy with the water vehicle, yes. there's, hun- there's hundreds of them out there. That's I've met- true. That's true. There's hundreds of them out there. They're doing it. They're just not telling you about it. And do you know that there's no water shortages at all? There's only water shortages with regard to snowmelt and rainfall, but there's so much water available everywhere in the country. I'm in California, and they're saying there's water shortages. It's crazy-making. Yeah. It's crazy-making. And you know the paradigm that we were talking about, that new knowledge is not necessarily allowed into the universities? Well, the whole geologic cycle needs an update, a total reboot. Exactly, exactly. And, and so does physics, by the way. For sure. Thank you, Charles Hall and others. There are others out there, too. I like that term, reboot. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the right word for our conversation. Yeah, yeah apropos, I'm, uh, yeah, very good. Obviously, you, you're a person with no fear, which means you know, you're going to go and go and go until delivery. I just hope that... All of this somehow can translate to an optimization of what can happen here and that it doesn't get sequestered. That's my wish. Kim, I'll tell you, honey, I'm not giving up on humanity and I'm not giving up on mankind. A lot of people already have, but I'm not. I'm not, I'm not giving up because there are good people out there and, and these are good, good people. Yeah, you've got some rotten eggs out there. you got that everywhere. That's but true. There are a lot of good people and personally... I I believe that they are worthy of my effort, and they are worthy of uh, God's blessing, nature's bounty, and all of those good things. I think that they deserve it. It's their birthright, and they should have it. And and that's I'm I'm working to try to 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 do that. Now, what what gives me the right to do that? Everybody has that right, and I welcome people. You want to join us? Hey. I'm easy to find. Bill collectors don't have any problem. Just go on the internet. I'm easy to find, and I don't hide from anybody. I never did, and I'm you know 61 years old. I'm sure not going to start now. Too old for that stuff. 
but I welcome people, and, and it's our birthright as human beings, sentient human beings, knowledgeable beings, to enjoy, and, and we have a duty to protect as well. You know, we've been charged with, you know, the stewardship of this planet, so we have a duty to protect it. And that's, I, I take that kind of stuff very seriously. When I read, you know, the writings of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, and I read these different writings of these great, great men who, who had the world and gave, gave it all away, gave, gave their wealth away to help people to, to establish good and do more good things. St. Francis charged us with taking care of the animals. I hold that absolutely as sacred. That's sacred. I, I don't go for a, a animal abuse, none of that kind of stuff, which you know gets me into protecting the, the, the doggies with work that I'm involved with now. Talk a little bit about that. Okay, yeah, the Poochie Pets Project. Everybody, I'm a dog lover. We we have dogs. My uh, wife used to run the uh, uh, animal shelter up in Pittsburgh. No, not in Pittsburgh, but in New Kensington, PA. And we've always been dog lovers. I, I, I love my doggies. I, I really do. I used to have this one dog. Her name was Boo. She was the first dog I ever bought that was my own dog. And she was great. She was a saltwater lab. I had her. I was blessed to have her for 13 years. Anyhow... We used to go out in the woods when I was affiliated with MUFON uh, at one time. I was an investigator, and I would take the Humvee. Boo and I would go out and investigate these things. I'd get a call from some MUFON guy. I'd say, hey, Joe, can you go run around out there? So I would, and Boo, when we'd go through the woods, she would cut her toes. So I developed a method in, uh, you know, through my microencapsulation technology and my knowledge of physiology and anthropology, medicine, and that sort of thing. In chemistry, I came up with a way to create a temporary pad uh, when a dog cuts its foot. So here, um, I'll, I'll be presenting that technology to the military working dog unit of U.S. Special Operations Command up at Fort Story. That's Virginia. great. That's great. I love hearing that. The military guys need that stuff, but but we're also, and you know, I'm, we're working to engage a uh, national and international rollout of the project or of the products that we call Poochie Peds. And this is a product that people will be able to buy. It will be relatively inexpensive compared to taking your dog to a vet or having your poochie suffer there with a cut toe. You know, when dogs go out on the ice, they cut their toes. And they come back in and bleed all over the place, and it's painful for them. Well, this uh, technology that I developed, or developed, patent pending, by the way, it provides a temporary boot uh, using a, uh, a series of uh, blood clotting agents and biopolymers to create a little temporary rubber boot and a, and a, uh, a bacteriological uh, uh, cleansing of the foot simultaneously. It does like four four different things at one time. It closes the wound, it sanitizes the wound, it cauterizes the wound, and pro- provides a temporary covering, sort of like a liquid Band-Aid, as it were. Sounds awesome. So we're, we'll be doing that up at Fort Story, Virginia, on the... Uh, 25th and 26th of this month, which is just a... Uh, but the, those are the kind of things I love to do. And, and look look how many doggies are going to uh, be helped by that and how many people and how much money people are going to be able to save by not having to take their animals. It works on horses and cows, too, and you can take the material. If a, if a horse you know cuts its fetlock or something like that on a bar, put this stuff on there, and that's it. Done. Less than three seconds. Wow. Stop. Bleeding stops, that's it. Wow. Clean the seal. But those are the kind of things that, you know, the high technology. Hey, let me let me do this, Kim. Let let me blow the horn for NASA a little bit, okay? 
let's just go to my NASA connection because NASA is a good, good agency. It really is, and there's a lot of tremendous people in, in there. And really, I have been blessed to to have had the opportunity to be part of that NASA family for the last 40 years. And I, and through NASA and through the space program and through the support of the American taxpayer, I've been able, through the technology transfer program, to bring forth a number of different technologies that have helped this planet, including the BioBoom, BioSoc, PolySorb, Microsorb, WellBoom, PRP, WAPID, that cleaned up the Valdez oil spill and still being used today based on that technology that I helped to develop as part of the research teams on STS-4143 microencapsulation, making microcapsules in space, spinning that off, and then using beeswax as the method to clean up. Not not the stuff that, you know, the, the chemical companies and the oil companies used in the Gulf of Mexico. I use beeswax. My stuff, you put that on an oil spill, guess what? Come back in 72 hours, that's it, it's gone. It's gone. Why isn't it used in the Gulf, for example? It, it was used in the Gulf. It was used in the Gulf, but... Um, Didn't that, they use Corexit, Joe? Didn't they use a chemical they, called Corexit? Well, mostly? You know, well uh, now I have to give... But anyhow, I'm grateful to NASA. It's great, and, and I'm going to be doing some more stuff with NASA. They're going to, we're going to have some more publications about... You know, the point of my referencing NASA is this. I want your listeners. The money that was spent 40 years ago by the U.S. taxpayer under the NASA programs that I was affiliated with in terms of microencapsulation technology are still paying dividends to the U.S. taxpayer. And I'm only one program. You know, I'm only one project. There are hundreds and hundreds of them that are still paying benefits to the U.S. taxpayer because of NASA. So in that regard, hey, kudos to NASA. Couldn't have done it without you. Great, great bunch of team. And have supported me in my efforts Never closed the door on me, to my knowledge. Always was there with any question and any access, unlimited, anything that... And everybody listening has that same access. Jet Propulsion Laboratory, KSC, JSC, everybody has access. That's what's so great about this country. You know, it really is. It's so great. And all this stuff's on Armanco's website. If they go to Armanco, they can look at... Uh, Armanco's connection to NASA that deals with development of the next generation rocket fuel that uses a special kind of wax and uh, our new method of treating bees and colony collapse disorder using 100% natural beeswax that that uses a, a natural substance that uh, controls that's a that off gases to control varroa mites, trachea mites, nocea, uh, and various diseases that afflict the apiary and the pollinators. Oh, and by the way, I am a member of the North Carolina Beekeepers Association. <laughs> so I have a deep interest in bees, always have. What do you associate is the reason for colony collapse disorder? Oh, you know what? I'm going to get in trouble if I answer that. I know that. I have a feeling. I don't know for sure, but does it have to do with the air? No, no. <laughs> or the no, seeds? And it's, the, and it's not the chemical companies either. Really? It's not the air. It's not the chemical company, so who's left? Without me telling you, who's left? Pharmaceuticals? No, it's not the pharmaceuticals. It's not a chemical. Okay. It's not a chemical, and it's not the air. I have no idea. Well, it's the people who are keeping the bees. Their Listerine technique is deplorable. The humans are killing the bees. It's not 
You don't, the human against you don't think that, that it's a mix? Nope. It's the humans. They're, they don't keep their... They don't keep their hives clean enough for the bees and their contaminants. I mean, that's just what our research, that's what we're finding. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, they're not. Yeah, well, tell Sherm Haas that. Sherm Haas is, is the consummate beekeeper. He is uh, the bee whisperer. So let me clarify what I understood you to just say. So you don't feel or think that anything with colony collapse disorder has anything to do with the GMOs or anything to do with the aerosol spraying that you don't feel it's a mix. You feel it is only isolated to the way the bees are kept by the keepers? I didn't say that. I said what, what we're finding with regard to infestation of trachea and varroa mites, we're finding that those two things, at least those two things, because we've you know, kept our focus pretty narrow, those two things have to do with the sanitation of the hive and keeping the hive the proper temperature and keeping it properly cleaned. I didn't even know that you had to clean a hive. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You've got to keep it clean. Sure, if, it, if there's an infestation of wax moths or, you know, errant hives will come in and attack, you know, hives, they call them rogues. There'll be rogue bees will come and attack, uh, you know, an otherwise quiet hive and go in and try to kill the queen and kill the workers and eat everything and carry it back to their hive, you know, that might be quarter of a mile away in a tree stump. So, you know, th- those are the kind of things. So, But it, you can do things to keep the hive clean and protect the hive from that, such as, you know, uh, using screens, using uh, good sanitation and Listerine techniques, and keep the hive clean. And that's what Sherm's uh, research has found. Sherm's got a, a large apiary out there in Santa Rosa, California, and he's got a a large, large practice produces a lot of honey and uh, has actually you know, under contract to a lot of the beekeepers who are responsible for most of the pollination activity out there in the San Joaquin Valley. And he's, he's studied this extensively. I, I actually brought him into the project two years ago and tasked him with oversight of uh, you know, fielding and testing and uh, quantifying and qualifying the materials that I created here at my laboratory in North Carolina for fielding out there and his tests. And we also have ongoing tests uh, in Shizhou, China, and in South America and Paraguay. So, and I'll be continuing those studies uh, next month, actually, when I get over to the University of Malaysia in Trenganyu. Uh, we'll be launching some bee study projects over there, too. Do you think in your lifetime that uh, your efforts just with all the things you're doing, that your information and discoveries with regard to colony collapse disorder will become mainstream understanding, at least your findings? Well, I would hope that it would. I, I went to, uh, um, I'm trying to remember her name. Uh, I, I want to say back in 1995, 96, when the first uh, discussions about colony, you know, CCD was uh, first brought forward and then it was announced at Penn State received a tremendous grant, and the guys out at uh, UC Davis were involved. And, and the, the guy who's uh, going to take over for the doctor who just wrote the uh, definitive statement on the colony collapse disorder, he's retiring. So our guy here at uh, University of North Carolina in, in uh, Charlotte is going to fill that position, I've been told. But uh, I actually went to the people at Penn State years ago, when the colony collapse disorder was first uh, being discussed and being put out there and 
And actually, the, the folks at Penn State said, you know, if anybody has any ideas, contact us. Well, at that time, I was working with a group in the, um, it's located in the upside down, uh, I don't know if you've ever been down to Alexandria. No. Down that way. But oh, a long time ago, long time ago. Well, there's a, there's a group that works out of the upside down pyramid. Oh, are you talking about Alexandria, Egypt, or Alexandria, Virginia? Alexandria, Virginia. Okay, good. There, well, you mentioned pyramid. pyramid. I thought, where am yeah. I? Now, there, there's a pyramid <laughs> there, okay? Okay. And, and it's literally upside down. It's pretty cool. But I was working with a group there that had an affiliation, and, and I was uh, the guys over at GMU, George Mason University, had uh, tried to get me involved in some things they were doing over there, and of course, I didn't. I didn't want to get involved with GMU. That's a whole story on itself. But uh, I did, at that particular time, have access to some pretty special equipment that would allow me to act absolutely. You know, do these definitive necropsies on uh, these bee uh, carcasses, and I had offered to, of course, undertake that for no charge and support the project. But uh, the folks at Penn State decided that they didn't need me to do that, so, so so I never ended up doing it. But I continued the research on my own. I did use the uh, the um, uh, equipment that was provided to me through uh, one of the resources that I have down there, and my own findings were that it was due to the uh, Nocia uh, virus, and it, it has a special way of attacking the bee and causing uh, failures in the bee's uh, systems. So in that regard, although I haven't published that data, I really haven't had a need to do it. And and the the way that it's being handled now because of the way the money's put out by the USDA and uh, the projects are absolutely controlled by UC Davis and that group out there. So anything I do falls on deaf ears. Uh, so, you know, I, I just do it my own way. I hear and you. I have, uh, I have people in, in Italy and all over the world uh, that I'm working with that recognize the significance of what we're doing and uh, and they have access to our technology and and our products and so so uh, you know that's just that's just one incident where you know an offer to help was you know they didn't really need my help they said I hear you but you know interesting to find nine years later they're coming up with the same conclusion that I arrived at in the summer of 1996 so it must be frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> Say the no, least. It, it, it's just, no, it's, it's, I, I already knew I could have saved them a little bit of time and money. Should we talk a little bit about Judy Resnick? And did you say earlier that she was your cousin? Yeah, and she was uh, the, the Ohio Resnick. So that was my dad's cousins. And she was a great, great kid. She went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, by the way. And there's the Resnick Auditorium there that was established through the generosity of um, of course, NASA, U.S. Air Force, Space Command donated a bunch of money, and they established. And she was a great, great kid. She was really nice. She was smart, really nice, very nice person. You know, physicist, very, very smart girl. Other than that, you know, I can remember being at some family functions and talking with her, and she was always the star. But nice kid, you know, very, very nice, very pretty. Looks just like my sister Polly. You know, they look like clones, but. Uh, I remember the day that the Challenger, we lost the Challenger, February 16th, and I was on the phone with a guy at NASA headquarters, by the way, in Washington. I had been invited to come down there and participate in some proceedings there in the Beltway at uh, uh, Fort Belvoir, and they wanted me to come to a briefing. 
And I'm, I had in my office, I had the TV on, and you know, being a big NASA nut, I'm, I'm watching this thing as it happens. And at the moment that the uh, the Challenger exploded, you know, th- what was it, 33 seconds into the flight or at power up? I think it was 32 point something seconds. The telephone line went dead, and this was I was talking with uh, my guy uh, in NASA HQ in, in DC, and the line went dead. I tried to call him back, and it you know, kept getting a busy signal, busy signal, busy signal. Well, I ended up not speaking with him again for about two weeks. And and when I finally did reconnect with him, he said, Joe, all the, all, there's a protocol here. If something happens, everything powers down, and everything goes into a record mode. So that everything that happened up until that instant, that every federal laboratory, every NASA installation, everything everywhere stopped. And that was a break point. It was a reboot, so to speak. And all the information that happened up to and including the point that the Challenger exploded became a matter of investigation. So that that accounted that that's what he told me. That's why the phone call was uh, terminated. Do you think that subsequent flights coming out of NASA are going to be way more protected and that there will be much less of a chance of a politic getting in the way of the safety of who's on there? I can't speak to that, but I can tell you that with regard to the integrity of those tiles and stuff that the commission found, they lost the integrity of the tiles. I was very, very upset over that because I had submitted a proposal to NASA about six months before we lost Challenger, and it's titled RIMS. That's Redundant Integral Monitor System is the acronym for it, wherein I designed a method that could have been implemented very easily, but with what NASA considered to be a considerable expense. Here's what happened. I submitted this 96-page proposal wherein I, I proposed that we retrofit the entire shuttle fleet with the RIMS monitoring system, the redundant integral monitor systems, wherein each towel interlocked with a communication system that had a fail-safe and a fail-sensor in it, such that if you lost one of those tiles or a piece of it, you knew about it inside the cockpit. Without question, you knew about it. Here, it sat on somebody's desk for almost a year. Then when I finally got the information back and said, and this was after the fact, after we lost Challenger, that NASA has decided not to implement this program for budgetary reasons, and we've decided to wind down the shuttle program. Therefore, we'd like to thank you for this. The response came a full year after the Challenger incident, and the proposal had been submitted six months before the shuttle. Uh, We lost the shuttle as a result of loss of integrity of the heat shield. So, I, you know, that still sits as pretty, you know, let me put it to you this way. When I go to the moon, if I go to the moon, I'm not going to rely on the NASA guys. I get somebody else to drive the limousine. You mean to build the limousine? Well, to launch it, to build it and trust my life on it because somebody turned a blind eye to something. And, I, and that always sat because I've asked the, the question repeatedly. Why did, why was this not acted upon. Well, we don't know. We don't know. It sat on some some dunderhead's desk at, at Dryden for a year. Whoever that guy was, they had a 
I don't even want to go there. Do you think that since they're launching a new shuttle program, I think in a couple of years, would what you created and established be good to offer to them again? They they already have it. They do? They do now. Okay. I gave it to them. Okay. It was an unsolicited proposal. So they have ownership of it, and I hope they utilize it. They don't have to pay me anything for it. I haven't, I haven't asked for anything. They can have it for free. I hope they use it. It's certainly a good system. Highly reliable, fail-safe, absolutely reliable. Can you talk a little bit about Space Command, what it is, what your understanding of it is, and the Space Command's relationship to the International Space Station and what it is you think we're doing at the International Space Station? So both, and whatever you can talk about. Okay. um, The limit of my involvement with Space Command is to provide support through one of the uh, Air Force agencies called SAFETY, That is the Society for Air Force Developmental Engineers. I was part of the reorganization and restructuring of that agency some years ago, just a couple of years ago, as it moved from uh, a paper agency into the digital world. So I was approached by Space Command to assist and facilitate that transition into the electronic age. We met with some resistance by one of the older command uh, posts there, an elderly general, literally an elderly guy who was in his 60s. He was subsequently was decommissioned and retired and uh, replaced by Major Frank Burns, who's a great, great guy. And then, and then the general was a good guy too, but it was time for him to go and let somebody stand on his shoulders and bring it into the digital age. Uh, Space Command is an evolutionary agency that came out of the things that happened after World War II, the establishment of the U.S. Air Force, Um, The establishment of NASA begat the commissioning of the Space Command, Operations Command, which ultimately comes under the control of the United States Navy. Regardless of what anybody tells you, the U.S. Navy is the only armed agency of the federal government that has any authority to act in the commission of war and aggression and protection. All underlying agencies get their authority from the Department of the Navy. So that includes the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Army, U.S. Space Command, U.S. Coast Guard, U.S. Marines, on and on. So Space Command is part of that. In terms of what I do with Space Command, I do whatever they would ask me to do. Part of that was, you know, to help with the transition of safety into its present-day structure, which is tasked with cultivating the education of new engineers, flight engineers, flight mechanics, that sort of thing. Is it its own separate like Cape Canaveral, is it its own flight path? or You mean, is it pretty elite? Yeah, it sounds like it's the Nordstrom's of flight. They're all pretty elite agencies, you know. They're all right. under, uh, under the command. They've got e- each one of these departments, you know, it's fragmented. Right. Each one of the, the uh, agencies has its own chain of command that reports ultimately, you know, goes up the ladder and reports ultimately to Undersecretary of Defense, to the Secretary of Defense, and then to the President. But there, and you know the Joint Chiefs, and and uh, there's a chain of command. You work the command, you know, backwards. I mean, all that stuff's available on Space Command, you know, and and they are tasked with things like, uh, you know, monitoring meteors and, you know, off-planet uh, hazards, you know, asteroids, that sort of thing, and they are, you know, deeply involved with NORAD and NORDEC and. Uh, the the guys over in Europe, 
you know, we have AFRICOM, SpaceCom, they, they would come under those agencies, AFRICOM, Eurocom, uh, that would come under and work with in, in conjunction with U.S. Army, U.S. Air Force, and all, all the, you know, combined services. But uh, they've all sort of integrated in terms of communication now, you know, since they have ComSec, SIGSEC, InfoSec, that sort of thing. And, you know, I'm one of the few guys that still, I did uh, did some training years ago that gave me a little bit of latitude to move in circles like that. And in, in a consulting manner, of course, uh, I, I just recommended people and put people, or recommended people to do certain things that they needed to have done. And it was just, you know, simple as, as saying, yeah, I know a good guy that can set up your satellites for you up on the North Slope. And here's his name and here's his phone number. And that was, you know, doing somebody a favor. It was, you know, no pay or anything like that. Just just trying to help, trying to help us. But that's probably the the limit of my involvement with Space Command at this time. However, I stand ready, willing, and able to lend any assistance in any way that you know falls within my capability at any moment. Where are they located? Uh, well, there are various components. Um, sure. You know, ultimately, you know, Defense Pentagon is uh, you know the, the, the headquarters, and then you have uh, factions of Cheyenne Mountain in in, in Wyoming, and uh, Colorado Springs is a big place. And Nordstrom Air Force Base. Nordstrom. Nordstrom. Mm-hmm. It's called Nordstrom. Uh huh. <laughs> NORAD. No, Nordstrom Air Force. Literally. Literally. See, I, I told you Nordstrom was involved. <laughs> yeah. It's a double entendre. Well, well, most of the yeah, double entendre. <laughs> most of the guys, uh, most of the the uh, the sacred cows from World War II <laughs> have have air. Air bases named after them. They were good guys. I'm sure, inside, no insult necessary. That's what some people call them, sacred cows. But yeah, you know, they're good, good guys, good airmen, and, and fine, fine people. And you know, that it does their memories good and their service good to have these places named after them. So. Is the International Space Station needing a reboot on its own technology? Is it true that it needs to be restructured? You know, I've sort of distanced myself from what's going on up there in in the ISS. I think they've got it, all the geniuses up there that they can use, and they can't. They, they don't need a guy like me right now. You know, the, the limit of my recommendation a few years ago when I was working with uh, Doctor Bill Thornton, who was he's just a great, great guy too. Bill Thornton was Space Hab, Space Lab, that sort of thing. Right. Excuse me. And NASA had a requirement. They put out a competition and a call for recommendations of equipment and, and exercise, literally exercise equipment, to deal with the phenomenon of what's called fluid drift in space. Our astronauts, due to being subjected to the microgravity conditions in orbit for extended periods, have a propensity to develop a condition which is called fluid drift. And fluid drift is the condition where the fluids, the blood, lymph, and et cetera, have a propensity to agglomerate into the abdominal cavity. And when it does that, in absence of appropriate exercise, you have conditions such as myocardial atrophy, premature onset of stenosis in women, and just a whole plethora of physiological conditions can result from onset of fluid drift, loss of consciousness, that sort of thing. But anyhow, my involvement was I proposed 
an exercise bow that I call the Jijo exercise bow that I developed by, with a friend of mine, Chinese guy named Dr. Ji Zhao. One of these days I'm going to market it. Um, someone has the prototype right now down in Georgia. I've been trying to get the prototype back for the last couple of years, but my lawyers are working on that. But anyhow, the limit of my involvement there was to propose use of the exercise bow we did studies on it with Dr. Bob Robertson, who's an exercise physiologist up at University of Pittsburgh, and we did some ergonomic studies and exercise physiological studies, and we found that with the appropriate amount of exercise using the exercise bow, which weighs a mere seven pounds, by the way, wow, that we could prevent onset of fluid drift in a microgravity condition. Well, one thing led to another, and they ended up using a treadmill that was designed by someone affiliated with uh, Bill Thornton's program out there. The net result being my device only weighed eight pounds, accomplished more than what the treadmill accomplishes. And my device weighed eight pounds as opposed to a 1400 pound treadmill. Isn't it? So, you know, when it really comes down to it, it's very political, isn't it? it? Well, it came down to dollars and cents and budgets. Apparently, they, someone wasn't concerned about saving $14 million to put 2,300 pounds in space as opposed to putting 8 pounds in space. And ever since then, my interest in the goings-on up in the International Space Station have sort of fallen by the wayside. I've gone on to things that I feel that I can better expense my efforts. But you know what? The reason I asked you that is also because in the earlier part of your conversation, as part of bringing the helium-3, I thought I heard you say, and they would bring it to possibly to the International Space Station. So you're going to be in the cooperation effort. They better have their stuff together. Well, I've got guys handling that. I'm, I'm not going to be the guy there, okay, for, for one reason or another. Okay. I will be the facilitator and the gateway. And the people in our organization, we've already discussed this, but... At the appropriate time, they'll have their marching orders and they'll execute the orders, and that's the way that'll happen. And I'm sure that NASA will facilitate and everyone involved in the ISS, and they're a great bunch of guys and women, and, you know, there's a lot of camaraderie in the Space Corps. There's a lot of camaraderie. And, you know, you asked about international politics and stuff like that. Well, guess what? Everybody that's involved in that leaves that kind of crap at the door because... You absolutely have to be able to rely on your crewmates. If you don't, there could be catastrophe. Right. So you've got to be mentally beyond that sort of thing, and you've got to leave all that stuff back on Earth because you're really out there where the angels are playing, literally and otherwise. But I don't anticipate any problems. I think once they see that we're for real, we're legitimate, and if we decide to launch from the United States now, we may not. Because in the United States, there's this agency called the FAA, and they have to issue a permit for you to do a launch. Now, the, the organization, Interorbital Systems, they have a portable facility that can be launched offshore. And that's one reason they're able to offer discounted launch modalities, because they've got portable launchers that you can go offshore. You don't need a permit. You don't need anybody looking over your shoulder. That's one way to save $10 million is not to have to go through that structure of permitting and this and breathing down your neck and submitting all this documentation that's required, mountains and mountains of it, whereby, you know, the people who do the actual launching, they have all that covered for you. 
and that's part of what you're paying for is that expertise to be able to take that launch and lift capability offshore. So that's one of the things that's attractive to us and one of the things that is part of the assurance of our capability to achieve mission accomplished. Love it. Well, I want you to know that it's been an honor and a pleasure to talk with you, to learn from you, to listen to you. And I don't know how many people you get a chance to meet who can stand with you, but it's been a real pleasure today. Kim, I stand with everyone. I can tell you that literally that I've sat with kings and I've been with paupers and I feel comfortable and I've been with presidents and, and sultans and I feel comfortable with everybody because, you know, first of all, I'm just me and we're all just people. So that, that's my approach with people. Generally, well-received everywhere I go. I'm blessed to meet people. Thank you very, very much for being Thank on the you, show. Kim. And I hope, it, I, I hope in the future you will return. And I look forward to meeting you one day. Soon, Kim. <laughs> very soon, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, my, my thanks to you and to your audience. And let me uh, send my best wishes out to everyone. Thank you. And uh, let me send very, very positive vibes out to everyone, all my friends and my family and to so many good people, my colleagues, to you, to the listening audience. And if I can be of any help to anybody, I'm just, I'm as close as the internet. And, you know, if I don't answer you right away, uh, I will get to you or someone in the organization will get to you. But thank you, Kim. Let me, let me give them the website. You can go to Romanco, R, M like Mary, A, N like Nancy, N like Nancy, C like Charlie, O like Orion, dot com. Yep. You got or it. Or dot net. Yeah, umlr.net is the Universal Mineral Leases Registry site. We've got our contact information is on all those sites. Or just Google my name, Dr. Joe Resnick. Don't believe everything you, you read. I'm not a black operator or nothing like that. <laughs> okay, thank, thank you. Thank you very much.